Welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins, Episode 9. In honor of International Women's Month, I bring to you a story that highlights the strength and power of maternal lineage. We are losing many heroes to COVID. In this dual interview, we celebrate the life of Vera Obermeyer, who passed away from COVID while in a nursing home. She had a long and colorful life full of purpose. While she eventually succumbed to the virus, she is not a statistic and it isn't how we should remember her. Vera fled Berlin in anti-Semitism as a nine-year-old. Her mother, trusting her instincts since what was happening was incredibly dangerous and was only going to get worse. She saved her family. As we often discuss on the show, our childhoods and the influence of our parents often shape our beliefs. What I found fascinating during my conversations with Sarai, Vera's daughter, and her granddaughter, Amy, was that each woman in their family is dedicated to fighting for marginalized people. Based on their, at times, traumatic family history, they give voice to those who need it. First, meet Sarai. Well, Sarai, welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. It's an honor to have you as a guest. Thank you very much, Jennifer. It's an honor to be here. I'm excited for our conversation as this is the first mother-daughter interview on AYM. And your family has such a powerful maternal lineage that we want to celebrate today. With the passing of your mother in January, can you tell us about her nature and her essence as a person? Sure. My mom was really extraordinary in many ways, particularly for her time. She was an independent thinker, and she was raising three children in her 50s. And she didn't just do what society dictated, but she took a step back and decided what she thought would be a good course to go. And she also was someone who was a feminist. So I was raised with the idea that women and girls should have every opportunity to fulfill their potential. And that was achieved um, by giving them a great education Mm -hmm. and encouraging them and expecting them to have careers of their choice. Mm, Love that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, Also, she had a sense of fairness. And I was raised in my family history that no one should be discriminated against on the basis of race, sex or religion or sexual preference. And I saw that in practice with my mom daily. She ended up being a school psychologist. Uh, She was the school psychologist for Mill Valley School District for a time. And her goal is to try to help children. Uh, And then she loved nature. And I think that she was able to feel a great deal of peace and tranquility and gain perspective by being in nature. And that by being immersed with the beauty of nature, it gave her an opportunity to take a step back from her routine and her daily life and perhaps think, is this the path I would like or do I want a different path or modify the path I'm on? She obviously has an incredible story. Can you share a little bit about her history and what she went through as a young person? Yes. Both my mother and father are Jewish, were Jewish. They both passed away. Uh, As you mentioned, my mother passed away recently about two and a half weeks ago. She fled as a nine-year-old. And my grandfather was an attorney, which I am. And he was an attorney in Berlin. He was his own human rights watch 
and began documenting anti-Semitism in Berlin, like Kristallnacht. And he kept on getting caught. And it's a long story in itself. But the bottom line is my grandmother was very concerned that the family was in danger. And she had the wisdom to say, we have to, to leave. And she picked up my mom, literally, and took her to Czechoslovakia. Wow. The Czech Republic now. And my grandfather did not have papers at that point. And he literally crossed by foot over the border um, and fortunately was able to make it. And then they went to three different countries to be able to get the papers they needed. Czech Republic, and they went to London in England, couldn't get it. Eventually, they found their way to Amsterdam, Holland, where they did get from the American consulate papers to come to the United States, where they found their way to San Francisco because my great-grandmother, her name was Ida Lubenstein. We called her TikTok for some reason. Anyway. Like, uh, the, like the app the kids are using? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see Sarah Cooper on that, and that is hysterically funny. Anyway. Oh, that's great. She's awesome. <laughs> she is awesome. In any event, my great-grandmother, TikTok, she also was a very strong, naturally brilliant woman who beat everybody in bridge, including, <laughs> you know, all the professionals she played against, left Germany, uh, and divorced her husband. Yep, for the time. So you can see I come from very strong women. Breaking the molds. I yes, love it. thinking independently, regardless, not thinking what society thinks, but rather thinking about what is the best course. Yeah, and, and that's so big for the generations that they were growing up in. I mean, they were pioneers of the Absolutely. mindset that was being forced on women. They were breaking the mold and then some. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, what was it like to have your mother's name was Vera? What was it like to have her as a mom? Like, what did you take from her experience and her essence? What I took from her was that she really paved her own path. Uh, what I mean by that was that, you know, in the 50s, it was very traditional. You know, it, the society was telling women as a whole that no career. And, for example, a good girl was a quiet girl. No voice. No voice. No voice. And watching movies, it was really unfortunate. You know, women barely spoke. And they were there, you know, in subservient positions. And they were just sort of the side to the main character, the protagonist, that was inevitably male. And... She did not follow that course, and she expected her daughters not to follow that course. Mm -hmm. And we were expected, all three children, to have careers, like I said, and all of us did. And she supported that emotionally and financially. So there was that encouragement. And I remember going to meetings with my mom when I was a child that were like women's rights meetings. And I'd sit there and it would be like, okay. And if there was any male bashing, she's like, we don't do that. And she would go, let's go. So there was an understanding that women should have the right and access to fulfill their potential. But that did not mean that one undermined the rights of men. 
you would want men and boys also to fulfill their potential. So that message was clear. Also, she was one who would show an interest in having justice and fairness. So if there was a situation where she felt someone needed help, she would reach out. And um, particularly people with minority backgrounds, I think because of my family background, there was a real awareness that there are people who are exploited and discriminated against and one needs to step in and help. Yeah. And that was definitely something with which I was raised. And even though we're talking about my mother, I sort of got it from both sides. So I remember as a, a young child um, watching um, death camp footage mm-hmm. and black and white. And it really was the basis of my career because I remember a particular scene that was so indignant where this guard was commanding this skeletal Jewish prisoner in a concentration camp to say, I'm a Jewish pig. And he refused and he was silent and he kept on being beaten. And he just said, I am I. And I think that was really what launched me to want to become an attorney that I felt everyone should be treated with respect and dignity. So that, that was something that had a huge impact on me And initially, when I was in law school, I clerked at the ACLU, as well as National Center for Youth Law that dealt with children's rights. Yeah, talk about your work, because, you know, it is certainly uh, the horrific experience that your family was exposed to during World War II really ingrained the sense of helping others. I mean, I think a perspective that some of us are lacking because we're not tested that way. So tell us how this history in your family and watching your mother led to the work that you do, which is really, really powerful, by the way. So please share some of your work and who you have represented, who was who were underrepresented. Sure. I found myself, after doing five years of civil litigation, being introduced to a former assistant district attorney. And he said that I should apply to be a DA. And I had no background in my family, although... As you can tell, I have a very small family because on both sides, they were slaughtered. So there were like less than 10, everyone, extended family growing up. Yeah. Having said that, basically, I wanted litigation experience. And I was finding that in San Francisco, you didn't get out to trial in civil, which is where I found myself. So I applied to the San Francisco District Attorney's Office And what convinced me to accept the offer was Bob Podesta, who was then the chief prosecutor, said, why don't you just come down and watch trials here? So I spent a day doing that. And I saw at the time I was 20, I just had my first child. So I was 28. And so basically I go downstairs anyway, and I'm watching this 20-something woman who was the DA in the case, take the case from beginning to end, alone. She wasn't second chair. She was selecting the jury, doing opening, direct, closing, everything herself. I said, all right, if I really want to be a courtroom attorney, you say you want to do it, here's your opportunity. So I did it. And so I was a DA for 20 years. 
And I found myself, um, you start off on research and writing and misdemeanor trials and the preliminary hearings, then felonies, uh, focusing on basically domestic violence and eventually sexual assault cases. And for me, I found my focus was trying to promote the safety of women and children. So it became a career for me. And then I moved from San Francisco uh, to Sonoma County. And I picked up uh, there, I became a member of the board of Verity, the Rape Crisis Center for Sonoma County. And I worked at the Solano County DA's office where I was in the domestic violence unit that included any kind of crime committed within a family. So I did that. And then I am now presently working at uh, Legal Aid of Sonoma County. And I have the pleasure of mentoring new attorneys and law students and caseworkers uh, who are the ones who actually go to court and present the evidence in seeking restraining orders for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault and elder abuse. And I love to mentor, so it's yeah. fantastic. So your mom, obviously, uh, and your ancestors had significant trauma. How did she share these stories with you and that experience, those takeaways from having to flee? Growing up, she didn't. Mm. And apparently this is typical of some survivors who fled, yeah. which I think is very unfortunate, but understandable. Um because why we live such a painful experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like a rape victim, just let's talk about it at dinner. That'd be tough. Yeah. Something that is so disquieting, so traumatic mm -hmm. would be hard. And she did it more by the way she lived as opposed to what she said. Another thing, and maybe it's being German background, which is something I'm constantly working on, is the ability to express one's emotions. Oh, yeah. German culture, frankly, has some strengths and some shortcomings, like every culture. And emotions are buried. And denial is at the forefront. And so it becomes difficult in communicating that experience because it's full of trauma, full of emotions, which I think the German culture generally does not equip people to navigate. Yeah. So again, I think thinking independently, one would have to say, oh, this is not such a healthy thing. How can I uh, learn to express my emotions as opposed to when you're a child, you do it pretty Naturally. Yes. Um, <laughs> my 10-year-old did it to me this morning. Yep. <laughs> right. And my children do it, and I encourage it. But it's something that was foreign to my upbringing. It was. And I remember asking at the prompting of my sister, who was artistic, so emotional, saying, why don't we ask our parents, you know, that they really didn't express their emotions. So this was supposed to be a challenge to them. Yeah. And I'm like 18. So she put me up to it. I was the younger sister. And I said, you know, you guys really don't express your emotions. And it was more accusatory. And they simply each in turn said, no, we really don't. And that was it. That was it. And shuts down those emotions right there. Interestingly enough, both my parents decided to document their lives by um, writing it down. So my dad had a self-published book about himself and my mom 
at 90 years old on her birthday, disseminated her, as she called it, memoir. And it filled in some gaps and details, yeah. uh, but it's very factual and it's devoid of emotions. Mm. So it's very consistent. And um, so they really didn't speak much of it. Yeah. If you ask questions, they would give you answers, gotcha. but they did not raise it. And they didn't uh, discuss trauma, except for my dad and me watching these concentration camp footage. So again, we didn't even discuss it as we were watching it. And I was extremely young. I want to say like seven years old. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, I see some of those uh, images at certain points in my life, even as an adult. Uh, You can't unsee it. You can't unfeel it. Uh, There's just no wrapping your brain around how absolutely awful that was. Well, it's hard to even take in. And I think it sort of laid the foundation for me becoming a prosecutor mm-hmm. because I, I could listen to these horrific assaults and see these horrific, awful photos of trauma and present a case before a jury because I wanted justice. And the most powerful thing is to expose the truth. So true. So true. Oh, God, I love that. Your mom, okay, while didn't talk about things, she lived a life that was rich and full and full of lessons. Can you talk about some of the incredible things that she did as well as what her legacy is? Because we do need to celebrate her. She lived a long life and she did a lot. She went to UC Berkeley and um, she met my ha- my husband, my father, <laughs> and uh, who also went to UC Berkeley on the GI Bill. She then did a combination of both having a career and raising children, which, as we we spoke of earlier, was very unusual for the time. Very unusual. And she was one who didn't think about what other people thought. For me, I got all my education before I had children, and that was a goal of mine because I thought that would work for me. And that did work for me. I hope it worked for my daughters. Anyway. I think it did. But, <laughs> <laughs> but with my mom, she overlapped them. Mm. So I remember like as a 10-year-old, I just really missed her oh. and would stay up late at night waiting for her return when she was going to graduate school mm. at night. And so she'd come home at like 10 or 11 sometimes. And I'd be like waiting for my mother. But that was hard. But it also showed me that my mother thought this was important, that she have a career. Mm -hmm. And also my mother really valued relationships over everything. Her marriage, she had tremendous friends. And I find myself, that is my value relationships, frankly, over everything. So um, when I spoke, she had two best friends when she came to this country. She nicknamed one Ink. Her name was Inga Berliner. And their other was Dorothy Levy. And they were the three 10-year-old girls. And it was rough. Here she came from Nazi Germany. And you know, in America, the Germans were the enemies, right, at the time? Yeah. And here, her mother and father had these thick German accents. Yeah. A little hard to fit in. Complicated. Very. Very difficult. Um, 
And I remember she would say we were termed the enemy alien by the immigration. So that was rough. I mean, it was just rough. Uh, yeah. So um, when I was speaking to Ink after my mother passed away, oh, my God, she was just tearful. It was so sad. And you could just feel the beautiful friendship they had. And she then lost by my mother passing away. Yeah. And so when you think about it, you know, 10 year old to 91, an 81 year old friendship. How many people have an 81 year old friendship? Not many. She valued relationships. So she did not value objects as much. My mother was most comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt. And she, um, I'm wearing jeans right now, sort of honoring her during this interview. Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. A part of this, which is uh, understandable, but um, very understandable, but I'm fortunate is my mom refused to speak German. Refused. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. And the only time I saw her speaking German was one time there was someone who was completely lost at San Francisco International Airport. Yeah. And all of a sudden, she, my mom approaches this woman and turns out this woman was from Germany. And so first time I'm hearing my mother speaking German wow. and I was in my 20s. And then my mom comes back and rejoins us. And she was so satisfied with herself because the woman said, for an American, you speak really good German. <laughs> and that was her goal. But no yeah. accent. She had no accent. My father had a thick German accent. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is an edge to the story. I didn't consider an appreciation for America. In, a great in your, appreciation. Which we're kind of in this weird phase where people aren't that way. Some people aren't. You know, America's she's got some bruises right now. But your fam- that must have been a big part of your family growing huge, up. Huge, huge. You were so right about that. My dad and mom and my maternal side my grandparents survived. The one that walked over the border and my grandmother who insisted they leave Germany. Yeah. Um, constant appreciation for America and particularly like the constitution. I love the constitution of the United States and mm-hmm. um, our rights mm-hmm. in the constitution, the 14th amendment that everyone is treated equally regardless of race, sex, religion freedom of speech, First Amendment, um, right to reasonable search or seizure, Fourth Amendment. Uh, America is founded and is a land of immigrants who usually fled some government that was oppressive. So you see that in our Constitution. What I think... Also, we need is community. And I think that's something I feel, and I'm so grateful for America, but I think that's something our society needs to work on. Absolutely. So a little tangent here, but what do you, how have you felt in the last year or so with everything that's been going on? You obviously, you must have some, we all have emotions around it, but I think you come from it with a different point of view. Do you mind sharing what your experience and what you've in this kind of very volatile time of ours? It was interesting because uh, my husband noticed that literally every time we met with my dad, he would mention 
basically the genocide of the Jews or Hitler. I mean, every single time. I, of course, growing up, I was completely unaware. So I'm just like, well, let me check it out. And then sure enough, he was right. So I then spoke with my dad, whose name was Walter Overmeyer. And I said to him, so dad, are you aware that every time we we get together, you're talking about the genocide of the Jews and or Hitler. He goes, oh, yes, I am. Yeah. I said, well, why do you do that? And he said, because I don't want you to forget. I said, well, you know, I've been hearing about since I'm a child. So, you know, I think I will remember. And I think it was sort of lost on me what he was referring to. I thought he was referring to the slaughter of the Jews. And I think what he was referring to was the slaughter of any group of people. And it can happen anytime, anywhere. Yes. And an authoritative government can supplant a democratic one anytime, anywhere. So your mother, incredible, your family, incredible, uh, empowers you to, um, to help others, marginalized people. What will you do to continue her legacy moving forward? Well, um, first of all, I think it's important to live what you believe so for me daily, if there um, is something I can do that promotes justice and fairness, um, I want to do it and promotes my focus tended to be promoting women and girls. So in having this lovely podcast you've created, you. I'm hoping by being interviewed that women and girls have a voice. And right now I have a voice. And I want women and girls to tell their stories. So this is a vehicle you've created to do that. So I think it's absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Sprite. You're welcome, Jennifer. And it's things like this where daily you come across an opportunity, then you seize it in order to promote fairness, justice, and those that are vulnerable. Um, Right now, working at Legal Aid, we serve vulnerable populations of the community. So the whole idea is to keep people sheltered and safe. So we have a housing unit. We have the domestic violence unit, the elder abuse unit. We have a veterans unit. Um, So by the work I do, I'm continuing the legacy, and I hope by the way I raised my daughters that they are continuing the legacy, and I believe they are, so I'm very proud of both my daughters, and um, both my daughters are very um, verbal. They tell their stories, Mm -hmm. and they both do things that I think promote people in many ways, whether it's my older daughter who founded a mental health clinic to help those that are vulnerable and has her own practice. And my younger daughter, who's an artist, who I think promotes people being able to communicate and express their emotions, um, which I think promotes good health. So uh, all in all, I think my daughters are carrying on the legacy of my mother, my grandmothers, and my great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. 
so true. And that's one of the reasons that is one of the reasons and the reason I wanted to have both of you on the show is because in threading together your narratives, you can see it. It is generational passed down one to the other doing good work and lifting others up, which thank you so much for doing that. You're welcome. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It's been a complete pleasure. You're welcome. Isn't it incredible that Sarai has dedicated her work to bringing justice to those who need it, and that for her, justice has been the pursuit of truth, no matter how difficult that truth may be. And now, a reflection from Sarai's daughter, Amy, demonstrating that legacy matters. The women in your family shape so much of who you become. Amy, welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. I'm excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. You and I were connected by a mutual friend. And in fact, because you lost your grandmother and you lost her to COVID and she's quite a character. And the friend that reached out said, hey, do you do grandmothers? I'm like, of course, they're mothers too. <laughs> Just one up from your mom. So I would love to start with your grandmother's story. Let's celebrate her and talk about what this incredible woman was able to achieve in her life. My grandmother came to America, you know, impoverished and, you know, met my grandfather, who's also a Holocaust survivor, has his own story. And they created this life for themselves that she really always looked out for others and was a supporter of the Black Panther movement, was a supporter for LGBTQ, you know, and, and marched many times. Huge feminist, went to a lot of organized meetings. And my mom likes to tell the story of there was one meeting that she took my mom to of a feminist group because she used to go a lot. Yeah. And they started bashing men. And my mom said that my grandma was like, we're out of here. Like she wasn't about putting others down, but was really much more about bolstering and strengthening and supporting marginalized groups who need help. That was like a, a huge focus. And her career was about, uh, she was a child psychologist and her career was about trying to help kids with, you know, special needs and learning differences to find the right school in San Francisco, which was really difficult in the 80s. She wrote a book about that. So she was also always sort of looking out for children. I mean, it's another vulnerable population who aren't fitting in to society and how to help them find their place. And that's been her theme, like throughout her entire life after surviving from this trauma uh, early on. Yeah. And we talked about this when we first met about trauma and how that gets passed down in families. What do you feel like that her survival did for your mother and for you? How do you think that's passed down generation to generation? My grandmother has always, she, she, you know, raised her own kids in the 1950s. And in that time, everybody was using formula. That was the big thing. And everyone was eating TV dinners. Like that was the thing. It was like, that was the, what was in, in that time. Yeah. And my grandma breastfed all of her kids, you know, and she always was fruit and vegetables and low sugar and fresh food 
And people thought she was crazy. Like they really thought she was, you know, um, like beating to her own drum. And she just like knew the whole time. She just like followed her own instincts and made her own decisions, not only with marginalized peoples, but also with what she felt was right versus what society tells you is right. And my mom is very much the same way. Mm. You know, she really questions a lot about society and what society says is right and makes her own decisions. You know, she really did so with TV. And when I was growing up with, you know, cell phones and all that now, she's just like always questioning things and wanting to know like, what, what is your instinct here telling you the way that my great grandma fled the Germany, she followed herself. I did that. My mom does that. And I do that too. A lot of, I think we're sort of um, compelled sometimes to follow what other people say to do and to go with the flow. I think being critical of that and following your own instincts and making your own choices is really important. And do you see that, did you make the connection between the way that your grandmother was and the way that your mom raised you? Was that something you were able to do? Yeah. Yes. I mean, my mom is very much that way. She doesn't want to impose her way. Um, She is very delighted with difference and highlights that. I'm much more social than she is and was. You know, my mom is, is she worked really hard in law school and I grew up in a home that was very intellectual. Both her and my dad worked really hard as a doctor and a lawyer and it's like a more quiet kind of home, which was amazing for me too. And And also I've always been very social and like forward facing and out in the world. And she just, she thinks it's like cute and funny and like has always promoted it and talks about how I wanted to invite the entire class to my birthday every year. And she would just do it. Like she didn't say like, why don't you invite like a few friends, you know, which probably I would have done with my kids if they said to invite the whole class to their birthday. You're like, how many kids is that? Yeah, totally. I would have been like, choose five. You're turning five, choose five. But she wasn't like that. She was like, okay, like if you want the whole class, like let's, let's make it happen for you. Yeah. And even though it was different than how she lives her life or how she, the values that she has, she was really, um, she helped me embrace who I am Mm -hmm. in a quieter way. And I think my grandma was very similar. Yeah. I love that. That just, just supporting you becoming who you want to be. No judgment, right? Whether yeah. it's it, whether it conflicts with their point of view or not. So we are obviously losing so many wonderful people like your grandmother to COVID. What was that experience like? Because I think all of us have this fear of losing a parent or a grandparent to this horrible mess that we're in. Could you share a little bit about what that was like? So my grandma was a member of the Hemlock Society, which I'm not even sure if it's still around. But she what was is that? Yeah, about it. Um, it's a society that basically like before there was assisted suicide for people who had terminal illness and that was a big cause in Oregon and in California. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- there was this hemlock society that kind of, I think the name hemlock was about 
I think you can take hemlock to assist suicide. So they took that name and she was a huge supporter of this group Mm. in part because she, again, wanted to help vulnerable, marginalized people. It's like another example of that. And also, I think personally, what she always communicated to me was she never wanted to end up not being herself. When she got COVID, it was a shock because she had been away at this nursing facility for a year without seeing family, which was really sad. Oh. Like my kids, my kids and I would visit through glass in oh. between us, yeah. like a jail where I would call like with my cell phone to a phone on the other side and mm. we would have a visit with her that way, which we were doing. Yeah. And then one of her caretakers had COVID and brought it into the nursing facility. It sounds like they had an outbreak there. Yeah. Um, And when she first got it, she was actually okay. She went to the ER. She was lucid. She was able to communicate. And then very rapidly started like turning away from life. And she didn't have symptoms. She had a temperature of maybe a couple of days. She had no cough. But, you know, I think I'm holding her in mind in terms of her having Parkinson's and giving away jewelry a while ago and how she, in in a lot of ways, really embraced COVID. I mean, it's kind of weird to say, but no. she, stopped, she like stopped talking. She like, you know, very rapidly within like a couple weeks stopped eating and drinking and just really turned away from life. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an Alexa set up so we could like see her and I would call her a few times a day on a video call through this Alexa device. Wow. And like at the beginning, she would smile when she heard my voice or when she heard my kids' voices. And then by like even the second week, she was pretty unresponsive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think... I don't know how much of it was like a will of hers to like, she kind of didn't want to be a vessel, like a body that was keeping on going and how much this was the way that she went that had some dignity. And I do think COVID I'm sure did a number with her body in terms of her organs and, you know, her lungs were pretty damaged, even though she wasn't coughing, but she turned away from life very fast very quickly and didn't want to eat and didn't want to drink and didn't want to interact mm-hmm. um like very fast yeah and part of that I think is also her you know and and also like she she wouldn't have wanted to come out the other side even more inhibited and and you know in a more difficult physical place than she was before she already was struggling with it yeah so, it was hard to see her deteriorate, but I didn't see a lot of specific like COVID symptoms. It's hard to think of her as a statistic, I think, like to think oh, of for her sure. as being, you know, as being killed by COVID is hard based on her life, but mostly because she was isolated for a year. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing. That's the hardest part. 
Oh, for sure. And I know it's a source of pain for you. So thank you for sharing that. But it's, I think it's really important to make it real for people what the experience has been like for people, you know, that you didn't get to see her for a year and that that's very real. And that it's you know, like that prison setup. It's not, uh, not ideal in many, many ways. No, it's really sad. And it didn't work. Like yeah. that's the thing, the hardest part of it. It's like, what's it for? You know? True. Right here, we did all these protocols and in the end, but you, the nice thing I do know from our conversation before is that you got to be with her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the very end when she was on hospice, you know, being able to be with her and also being able to, um, at the very end, we were going in shifts and I was able to go with my mom and my sister and be all, you know, all together there with her was very meaningful I think for all of us absolutely and the way that it should be right yes I mean it's so that is really sad to think of people dying alone is like very very sad it's just like a part of life that we all face and you want to have family there who love you who yeah. can reassure you and say we're here and this is hard and we love you and and to hold your hand and have that intimacy that we all deserve Absolutely. To not have that would have been horrific. So I'm very thankful. Yeah. And I'm thinking so much of other people in these circumstances who died alone and how hard that is. Oh, absolutely. Um, But because your maternal lineage is full of fighters, you turned this experience into something where you're helping others now get vaccinated. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. So the next morning, so my grandmother died on Sunday evening and Monday morning, I got uh, an email that had a um, link to a sign up genius that I was able to put names down for a clinic to be vaccinated. And I didn't know if it was real. Like, I didn't know what was going on. It seemed so strange, especially the circumstances of my grandma who was always thinking about how to help vulnerable people and, you know, questioning society about what's right and what's not. And here is this link for this clinic that's taking 65 and older people. And I just thought, like, how can I help? And so I contacted as many people as I could. I put down as many names as I could um, until the whole thing closed. And I probably... Um, I'm, I'm not even sure how many people I helped get vaccinated, but I mean, it was at least 30 plus people over the age of 65, but it feels very fitting with my grandma and her ethos and who is vulnerable now. And it's older people who could really be impacted by COVID like my grandmother was and how to help people you know, escape her fate is pretty powerful. I love it. It is your grandmother. (laughs) The universe. I believe in that. I'm all the way woo woo. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it was, it was very coincidental and too much. So I feel like to be a coincidence. So yeah. Where you get the goosebumps a little bit, the hair hair on your arms raised. So you are a child psychologist in Oakland. Yeah. So obviously this is in your DNA to be a helper. Tell us what are you seeing in your work and how can we help kids in this really challenging time? 
So I, um, I am the founder of a institute called the Children's Institute on College Avenue in Oakland. And the populations I serve are either people who have insurance and who are also able to pay out of pocket for, I mean, therapy is very expensive. I also have three associates who work for me who are able to um, do sliding scale for patients. So the population I serve is also sort of marginalized peoples in the community who need mental health care help and can only afford to pay $50 a week. And it really isn't available a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to also serve the community in that way too. Um, right now I'm seeing kids, especially kids in middle school struggle. That's been, I think the hardest age that I've seen because teenagers are rebellious anyway, like by nature. So, yeah. you know, if they want to see friends, they're out seeing friends, which is, you know, not super COVID safe, but yeah, mental health wise, they're in a little bit of a better camp and same with really young kids. I think that preschools are still open and there's a lot of programs on campus that are available for young kids. Uh, and they also, I think, have less of a need, like a social need than some of the older kids who, you know, in middle school, you really start thinking about friends in a new way and family becomes less and less important. And yeah. a lot of stuff plays out in middle school that kids aren't being able to express What's one thing that we can do as we wrap up? What's one thing that we can do if we've got, you know, middle schoolers in our house or even, you know, my 10 year old who's starting to feel the effects of us? What can we do for our kids? I mean, I think the best thing that we can do, what's hard is at the same time that we're more reliant on technology, I think also parents' workloads are ramping up. So we're in this, you know, across the board, I've, I've been hearing about how. Uh, families are coping with a higher amount of workload and also less social time and less school for kids. And it just means that there's less like connection with each other on top of the disconnection socially. Um, So if there's any like advice that I would give, you know, for families, it's, it would be to very consciously spend time together, that that time is just more and more rare right now. And there's a lot of slow days, but I think there's a lot of people who are still on phones and, you know, computers and TVs because we're also coping through a crisis. But I think that that's where kids get into the most trouble is when there's a real feeling of disconnection socially and from family and Um, because technology is not a replacement of those things. So trying to be very purposeful in connection. I get it. That's great advice. And I think we all could be more conscious of that, right? Me too. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do. It is really, really hard. Well, Amy, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's such an important one. What an amazing family of females from one generation to the next. It's just an honor to know your story and that you turn turn things that are challenges into progress. That's the lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome yeah. getting to know you and talking to you too. Same.
Listening to Sarai and Amy, understanding more of who Vera was got me to thinking, am I doing enough to help those who are on the fringe in society? While Vera never spoke of the childhood trauma, Sarai explored the subject of the Holocaust with her father and used those lessons to become a prosecutor. And for Amy, watching her family of powerful women challenge the status quo and her mother giving voice to the voiceless inspired her to work with children. So in honor of Women's History Month and Vera, let's all of us, men and women, celebrate the power of maternal instincts and equality for all. We must continue to challenge the status quo, to embrace the lessons of the past, some very difficult to even comprehend, and to remember that there are so many people out there who need our help, who need our lift, who need our support, and it really doesn't take much to offer a hand. Until next time, stay curious and be well.